Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. And I'm Olivia Covington, co-host and editor of the Indiana Lawyer. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you didn't have to do too much mediation during Thanksgiving this past week. If you don't know the drill yet, here's the rundown. We'll open today's show with some recent headlines before diving into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Indiana Bar Foundation Executive Director Chuck Dunlap, who recently eclipsed 20 years with the organization. Let's get rolling. It's December 1st, 2021, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some news out of Indiana's two U.S. Attorney's offices, which each have new leaders. On November 15th, Zachary Myers was sworn in as the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana. He joins Clifford Johnson, who was sworn in as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Indiana in October. Both men were nominated to be the state's chief federal prosecutors by President Joe Biden, and both are history makers in the Hoosier State, as they're the first black men to lead the U.S. Attorney's offices in both Indiana districts. Myers is an Indianapolis native whose career has included public and private sector work. He's been an associate at what is now Fagri, Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath, a staffer in the U.S. House of Representatives, and an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Indiana and the District of Maryland. For his part, Johnson worked as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Indiana for more than 30 years, including stints as first assistant and acting U.S. attorney for the district. Prior to that, he began his career as a trial attorney in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. The U.S. Senate confirmed Myers and Johnson to their new roles in late September with unanimous consent. Staying in the Northern District of Indiana, we've got some news for you out of Lake County. As we've previously discussed here on the podcast, Lake Superior Judge Diane Boswell died unexpectedly in October, and a judge pro tem was appointed to fill her seat. The Lake County Judicial Nominating Commission opened applications to find a permanent successor last month. But a lawsuit against the JNC is trying to stop that process. Here's ILA editor Olivia Covington with the details. Judge Boswell's unexpected death has put a spotlight on an issue that has been brewing for nearly a year, the restructuring of the judicial nominating commissions in Lake and St. Joseph counties. Under legislation passed last spring, the composition of both JNCs was changed to now include three members appointed by the governor, three appointed by the county commissioners, and a Supreme Court justice. The JNCs in both counties have already been reformed under the legislation, with a mix of attorneys and non-attorneys serving on the commissions. But the legislation was widely opposed by local lawyers and judges, who traveled to Indianapolis during the 2021 legislative session to voice their concerns. They said the bill could eliminate attorney input into the selection of local judges and could remove diverse voices from the commissions. But the bill passed, and now a lawsuit claims the merit-based selection process in Lake County violates the Voting Rights Act by preventing minorities from electing their superior court judges. According to the lawsuit, merit selection in Indiana is only used in counties with high minority populations, while other counties have traditional judicial elections. Aside from Lake and St. Joe, Allen and Marion counties also use merit selection. The lawsuit is asking the Indiana Northern District Court to enjoin the process of selecting Boswell's successor until the Indiana General Assembly is given, quote, the opportunity to enact a judicial voting system in Lake County that does not violate the Voting Rights Act, end quote. Judge Philip Simon is hearing the case. He set a briefing schedule that would allow for a ruling on a preliminary injunction in mid-December at the earliest. Until then, Senior Judge Kathleen Lang is presiding over Lake Superior Court, Criminal Division 3, in Boswell's place. 
If you've been with us for a while, you know that civil forfeiture reform has been a big deal in Indiana for the last few years. From the legislature to the Indiana Supreme Court to the Supreme Court of the United States, Indiana's civil forfeiture law has been considered and revised numerous times, and the work still continues. Last month, the Institute for Justice filed a new lawsuit challenging another facet of Indiana's civil forfeiture law that allows prosecutors to pay private lawyers a contingency fee to handle civil forfeiture cases. The lawsuit alleges that allowing contingency fees incentivizes these private lawyers to pursue monetary gain from civil forfeiture cases, rather than pursuing justice. And this lawsuit isn't the only civil forfeiture case making waves in Indiana. On December 9th, the Indiana Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in Terry L. Abbott v. State of Indiana. In that case, a civil action was filed against Terry Abbott, who was convicted on felony drug charges, seeking forfeiture of more than $9,000 and four guns from Abbott found during a search. The Elkhart Superior Court denied Abbott's request for the appointment of counsel at public expense and granted the state's motion for a summary judgment. The Court of Appeals of Indiana reversed the entry of summary judgment for the state and affirmed the denial of Abbott's request for appointed counsel, with the majority concluding Abbott could use the seized money to fund his defense. However, Judge Nancy Vedic partially dissented and opined that she would not allow Abbott to use the seized cash to pay for an attorney. Todd S., an attorney with Brown Law Office, gave us his analysis on the case that will go before the High Court next week. More interesting, I think they're going to spend some time discussing, okay, well, is the trial court, uh, do they have the authority to basically um, order the release of this money to an attorney for the purpose of, you know, fighting for the, the remainder of it? And, and in that case, I think it, it leads to a couple uh, uh, problems. One is that if, if trial courts were to do this, then the amount of money in contention, the race, would, you know, naturally shrink and would easily be siphoned off by legal fees. Uh, which would potentially make the entire claim uh, moot, meaning that, you know, if we're talking about a race of, let's say, you know, six, $7,000, I, I could see that easily being consumed by, by legal fees, leaving basically nothing left. And then, of course, you know, the whole lawsuit uh, is, is moot at that point. So that just doesn't make um, sense. And then the other thing is that, right, it, it also doesn't wash that money money, which is deemed to be too tainted to return to the defendant, would nevertheless be released to the defendant's attorney for the purposes of recovering the remainder, remainder of that money. So, so these are just two very, I think, practical problems. Speaking of lawsuits, we've got an update for you in a case against the Indianapolis Archdiocese. In case you've forgotten, a former Cathedral High School teacher named Joshua Payne Elliott sued the Archdiocese after he was fired for marrying his same-sex partner. A similar situation happened at Roncalli High School, also in Indianapolis. The Archdiocese has defended itself by raising ministerial exception, claiming a civil court cannot interfere with the employment dispute because it involves religious issues. A special judge had previously dismissed Payne Elliott's case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and failure to state a claim but the Court of Appeals of Indiana reinstated the lawsuit on November 23rd. COA Judge Elizabeth Tavides wrote that the parties have not yet undertaken, quote, the requisite fact-sensitive and claim-specific analysis that must precede analysis of whether the First Amendment bars Payne Elliott's claims against the Archdiocese, end quote. She also wrote that the special judge erred by entering a dismissal for lack of subject matter jurisdiction and prejudice. The Archdiocese is represented by Beckett Law, a religious liberty law firm, while Payne Elliott is represented by Delaney and Delaney in Indianapolis. Our next headlines come out of the downtown Indianapolis State House. You may have heard that the lawmakers gathered late last month 
to consider a bill that would restrict employer COVID-19 vaccine mandates and create a plan for ending the state's public health emergency. Lawmakers heard roughly seven hours of testimony both for and against the proposal on November 23rd. The plan had been to reconvene on November 29th to vote on the proposal. Republican lawmakers argued swift action was necessary because many employees are facing termination for refusing to get the vaccine. But after the testimony, they changed course. On November 24th, just one day after hearing testimony, the GOP supermajority said it would not call lawmakers back for a one-day special session. Instead, the public health emergency and vaccine mandate issues will be addressed when the General Assembly returns for its regular session on January 4th. According to Senate President Pro Tem Roderick Bray, Republican leadership decided that the, quote, ongoing complexities of the issues require additional study and input, end quote. Democratic leaders celebrated the about-face. Senate Minority Leader Greg Taylor said that the issues of the public health emergency and vaccine mandates should not be unnecessarily pushed through in a way that, according to him, would hurt Hoosiers. Governor Eric Holcomb had a more neutral response, saying only that he would once again extend the public health emergency for another 30 days. For our last headline of the day, we want to tell you about a story you'll see in our next print issue. Isle reporter Katie Stancomb is digging into some recent court decisions that seem to indicate the COVID-19 vaccines are hindering the efforts of some inmates to obtain compassionate release based on the pandemic. Katie will look at these court decisions and speak to experts about whether the existence of the vaccines means compassionate release will be harder to get. She'll also find out whether it's been difficult for inmates to access the vaccine from prison. You can read all about that in the December 8th issue of The Indiana Lawyer. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. You can learn more about these and other legal stories at theindianalawyer.com. Next up is my conversation with Chuck Dunlap, the executive director of the Indiana Bar Foundation, who is celebrating his 20th year with the organization. Stick around to hear him reflect on his career. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, our guest is Indiana Bar Foundation President and CEO Chuck Dunlap. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, many of our listeners either know you personally or are familiar with your work. Uh, they might not know that this is a bit of a special anniversary year for you as it marks 20 years since you first took over as president and CEO of the foundation. When, when you think about how you've been working for the foundation now for two decades, what are some of your first thoughts that come to mind? The first thought is I can't avoid calling myself old anymore. Uh, I have to sort of admit that fact, but Two decades, it's hard to believe it's gone by so fast. Um, in some ways, it seems like it was, you know, not that long ago. But in other ways, there's, you know, a lot of change that's happened in those 20 years. And um, so it's really exciting. When I first started, it was uh, me and one other person. Uh, many folks might know Michael Tranovich, who's our financial uh, comptroller. And there's the two of us. And now we have uh, 12 employees and uh, grown in our programs and outreach. And so, yeah, it, uh, it's, it's great to see the growth. Absolutely. So, um, you know, what are some of your proudest accomplishments? Obviously, a lot's happened during all this time. But when, you know, when you're thinking about accomplishments in the foundation, what, you know, sticks out to you? 
Yeah. So going back, um, you know, over the course of those 20 years, there are a lot of accomplishments that's, uh, that are exciting. I think one of them is just IOLTA as a program, the Interest on Lawyers Trust Accounts program. And uh, we were the first a- agency and, and still are to administer it on behalf of the Indiana Supreme Court. Um, and that has had its up, ups and downs as interest rates have gone and uh, up, ups and down cycles. We have gone the same. But that was a significant program for the Barr Foundation and for Indiana to help fund civil legal assistance programs. Um, more recently, we have a couple really exciting things that I think I'm you know, really extremely proud of. One, we hosted the um, National High School Mock Trial Competition, uh, albeit virtually, um, but we hosted that earlier this year, which was the culmination of a lot of time and effort. And uh, in particular, uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen David and um, federal uh, court judge, um, um, Judge Young, were our co- two co-chairs. And um, that was a great, we had, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how many people virtually, but thousands of people virtually participating from around the country um, and even some international. So that was another proud moment. And another one on the uh, civic side, too, is the, um, uh, the, the bill that was passed in the last legislative session, uh, 1384, which is going to uh, require a semester of civic education in middle school. And it also created a new commission on civic education and some standards to go along with that new class. And we were a really big part of that. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing those things put into place. But th- those are some accomplishments that particularly uh, proud of recently. Kind of on the flip side of that question, what are some of the challenges the foundation uh, is still facing today, maybe that you were also facing 20 years ago? And how has COVID-19 kind of impacted the work that you guys have, have done the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, this is, these are questions that a lot of people have had to deal with. So the first one, so that success of IOLTA is also a challenge because of the interest rates. We have had annual revenues of $3 million dollars. Uh, when interest rates are uh, good. And more recently, we have had annual revenues of $300,000. So it's hard to maintain an income stream that's so variable and volatile when you're giving out grants on the back end that it supports. But we've been able to do that. We've been able to build a reserve up and try to stabilize that a little bit. So that's also one of the challenges that we continue to deal with is keeping the income streams vibrant enough to be able to support the little the programs and the, and the uh, grants that we provide. And then in this sort of COVID reality world that we're living in still, um, a lot of the programs that we do on the civic education side have been um, impacted. So we had to go, I mentioned the National High School Montreal Competition. It was supposed to be in Evansville, Indiana with a bunch of people there in person. We had to pivot to a virtual competition, so it was online. We're doing the same thing with our high school mock trial competition last year. This year, we're in the midst of our We the People competition which uh, many people know and heard and have heard about. Um, we had our regional competitions last week virtually, and in a few weeks in early December, we're going to have our state competition, which will be our first in-person event um, since the pandemic. And so it's a challenge doing dealing with that, but um, that's one aspect. On the other side of our mission, the civil legal assistance side of our mission, the biggest thing for us has been how to react to a lot of the folks in need that have suffered through the pandemic. And a lot of that recently is in the housing crisis. So a lot of our grantee organizations are dealing with that, Indiana Legal Services, Indianapolis Legal Aid Society, and others. So we need to be able to get them the resources that they need in order to provide those you know, overwhelming need for housing assistance in particular. Plus, everything else doesn't go away either. So those are some of the realities that we've been dealing with in our, uh, our lane from the pandemic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, with We the People in the Mock Trials, um, we've done some stories recently about how there's been kind of a lawyer shortage and that kind of thing. What has the participation been like? And, you know, how are you guys being able to get kids to get excited about the law and potentially, you know, going down these paths? Yeah. Um, it's, it's exciting because the, the students that participate, um, especially with the mock trial program, because it's sort of an, an after-school activity, they want to be there, they're excited about it. The We the People program, um, some students, it's generally in the, a regularly rostered class, so it, it, it meets all the Indiana standards, and so it's sort of embedded in the course curriculum for a semester. So students may have an opportunity to sign up for that particular class, the We the People version of their government class, um, but some of them they might not have an opportunity to, you know, do that in uh, seek that one out. Um, that it, it that's how they do that's how all their government classes are at some schools. But it's great to see when the start of the semester to the end of the semester, and those students are so excited about and so engaged about the government, about the Constitution, about the rule of law, about all of the things that really are important to the legal profession, and certainly at the Indiana Bar Foundation. Um, one of the challenges, and I think is civic education more broadly, uh, and, and the uh, lack of it in certain areas. And so when we can see students who are able to have these opportunities and go through these programs, come out sort of less cynical about the legal system and, and about government and civics in general, and realize the importance of active, engaged citizenship, um, that's a great thing. And so hopefully we like to think that a lot of them will continue on in whatever they do, but I think a lot of them will also continue into the legal career as well, and that's certainly a goal that we have um, for a lot of our programs. What opportunities are there for people to get involved right now with the foundation, and are are there any specific needs um, that are prevalent? What a great question. I mean, first of all, we always have needs. Uh, financial support is always appreciated, but we really, really appreciate um, volunteer support, and, and we, need the, we need a lot of that. So right now, I mentioned um, our regional competitions. We had volunteer judges, attorneys. You don't have to be an attorney. Um, you can be anybody, really, a community member, somebody interested who wants to be serve as a volunteer judge for our We the People program, which is going on right now, as I mentioned. And our... We have a middle school state competition that's coming up on December 7th, and then we have the high school competition the day after that, December 8th. They'll both be in Indianapolis at Union Station uh, downtown, and we're looking for volunteers, especially for the middle school competition. We need 36 judges per day, and we still have some spots available. Uh, We provide training and everything you'll need to know. Um, If you want to donate a day of your time to help support the program and see these uh, amazing students and teachers up front, uh, and sort of, you know, in person, it's a great opportunity to do that. And then later in the spring, we have our mock trial competition. And so we need, again, judges for that, volunteer judges, attorneys, judges. Um, and we also have some opportunities for non-attorneys as well. Um, but that is a, you know, a mock trial. It is what it says. But uh, we need the people to serve as the jurors and the, and the presiding judges in those as well. And those are all over the state. We have regional competitions that we'll be having in February with state competition in March. So we have plenty of opportunities there. And then the last I will say is there's always opportunities for pro bono service, um, not necessarily through us directly, but through the legal aid providers that we support, as well as I want to put a plug in for Indiana Free Legal Answers which is the online platform where attorneys can log in and answer questions from Hoosiers all across the state, civil questions, civil uh, legal questions, and um, we're always looking for help there as well. What are some uh, future initiatives the foundation is working on? Um, What can we look forward to the rest of this year going into 2022 and maybe even beyond that? 
Great question again. We have a lot of exciting things that we're working on. One of them, in particularly in particular with the mock trial program, um, on the heels of hosting the national competition, uh, one of the things we wanted to focus on is providing a lot of these opportunities to a lot to access these programs to students that might not otherwise be able to. So we created a diversity initiative focused on the mock trial program, and we've had really good success in partnership with a lot of the law firms, with Lumina Foundation, uh, Craig DeVault, um, and many other partners and sponsors from the legal community who have sub- contributed dollars but also agreed to su- uh, support the team through volunteer coaching. Um, and embedding with the teams. A lot of these students at some of these schools have never met an attorney before. They're interested. Um, they want to. They want to. You know, pursue this, but they don't really know what it is that they're. You know, how how it works and how to structure an argument and all the things that litigators do on a daily basis. So, that's a program that we're uh, in the process of of moving forward. The the case has been released. The teams are preparing. We're going to be matching volunteer attorneys. Uh, and, and law firms who have been a part of this with schools that are interested. Uh, so that's coming up. Uh, we also are looking to do some work around the civil legal assistance area. Um, and really the Indiana Legal Help website is sort of the online portal that the Bar Foundation administers in conjunction with the uh, collaboration with Indiana Legal Services, the Supreme Court, Coalition for Court Access, and a lot of our partners. So we're going to be working on making it a more robust um, sort of front door for accessing the civil legal assistance. One of the things we just added to it is a volunteer opportunity uh, piece. So if you're an attorney who wants to do pro bono, but you don't know where to go to find opportunities, if you go to indianalegalhelp.org, it is now a pro bono opportunity guide is there, and all of the legal aid providers around the state put and load up what opportunities they have, plus the ones that we're aware of and others. So if you're looking for a menu of options, you can go there, and that's a new feature as well, and we're going to be continuing to expand that um, in the coming year. Well, uh, with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode. Thanks again to our guest, uh, Chuck Dunlap, for joining us today. Uh, The Indiana Lawyer podcast is available on theindianalawyer.com as well as on your favorite streaming services. (laughs) 